1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Kyle Longley about his account Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Kyle Longley about his account of the final year of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, entitled LBJ's 1968: Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. We're happy to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling the listeners something about yourself. I am the uh, uh, Snell Family
0: Dean's Senior Professor of History and Political Science at Arizona State University. I've been there for 21 years, and uh, I've published a number of books. I think we're up to now eight books, uh, two of those edited works in which I contributed. Um, but this is a book that uh, you know builds off of a number of the other books that I've written. Uh, including two on combat soldiers in Vietnam, and also a biography of Senator Albert Gore Sr., who was a contemporary of President Johnson.
1: What led you to focus a book on LBJ in particular, and specifically his final year as president? Well, I think there's a number of things that sort of brought this out. I lived in Austin, Texas from 2011 to
0: 2014, and everywhere you went, uh, LBJ's imprint was there, that and Lady Bird. I lived less than a half a mile from the Lady Bird Wildflower Center, You know, you drive by the LBJ library. Uh, Everything uh, was related to what LBJ had done in that particular area of central Texas. So I think that was a major thing that was just always sort of ruminating there. And as I started looking out for some new book, book projects after I finished my books on Combat Soldiers of Vietnam, I started thinking, you know, what's on the horizon? What would be an interesting Uh, anniversaries to celebrate and with the 50th anniversary of 1968, a year that President Johnson called a year of continuous nightmare, it just sort of stuck with me and uh, made perfect sense to me on why I would come back and try to figure this out and figure out 1968 from the probably the viewpoint of the most powerful man on earth and how he dealt with the challenges that year. So uh, it was a great opportunity being in Austin. I already studied the research. And then it's always good to go back to Austin, a great place to research. And LBJ Library is one of my, if not my favorite,
1: uh, presidential library in which to work. It's interesting you describe LBJ as uh, perhaps the most powerful person on earth. And yet, as you make it clear from the start of your book, he is a person who is being buffeted by all of these events you have. You describe how Vietnam hangs over the entire year as it it does famously for so much of his presidency. And that in so many of the chapters uh, where you focus upon events, he is as much responding to all this tumult and turmoil as he is in the driver's seat shaping events.
0: And I think that's true. You ask a lot of, and there's some great quotes on this very particular issue of the thing that scares politicians most uh, oftentimes are events because they can't control and in 1968, it's just one thing after another, after another, that here you have the President of the United States just desperately trying to deal with one crisis after another. And I think this is, uh, you know, a reflection on and why I think 1968 is so pivotal. I mean, it's a year where we're divided. It's a year where the people, you know, we have riots, we have the war protests. It's just a tumultuous year, but it's not just a tumultuous year in the United States. It's a tumultuous year on a global scale. We have an um, U.S. ambassador assassinated for the first time, and he's assassinated in uh, the summer in Guatemala. We have the uprisings of the French students. You have the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Everywhere, it seems like the world is just sort of coming apart at the seams. And here this man sits in the White House and struggles just to try to maintain some kind of equilibrium after years of, you know, being very victorious and probably one of the most successful politicians in American history as far as being able to promote an agenda in 1964 and 65. And now he's just sort of holding on. And I think that's what makes him human in this case. Uh, And it really provides us some insights into a, a very different man from 1964 when he's at the height Now he's struggling just to hold on and maintain the equilibrium. And in many ways, I think he does it better than
1: uh, many would have uh, thought he would have been able to do so. I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps uh, elaborate a bit further as to what was LBJ thinking at the start of the year? What was his outlook for 1968 and and what did he see himself as uh, intending to do in, in the upcoming year? Well, this is one of the
0: challenges. Uh, And I think you see this in the first chapter when I discuss the State of the Union address. And what, you know, what I see there is after five years of, you know, in their first two years, the Johnson administration accomplished so much and they just you know, kept a high pace. And it was just difficult by 1968, partly because of uh, Vietnam had just worn them down, but also that they'd accomplished so much, there wasn't much else other than trying to battle to sustain the great society and sustain many of the advances that they uh, pushed. And that's very different from promoting an idea, to sustain it, and it was more difficult. And so I think he saw this as, you know, one, the State of the Union is sort of the opening address for his re-election campaign, which we know we'll talk about in a moment, uh, never came about. But it's, it is it is a struggle. How do you continue to move the country forward in the way that you had done so in 64 and 65? And he finds it so difficult as the conservative opposition is strengthened so much, especially in the midterm elections of 1966. So he's sitting in that State of the Union and he complains bitterly uh, to one of his advisors about, you know, uh, the State of the Union address wouldn't make chickens cackle in the dark, even if you came at them, uh, because it just didn't have those new ideas. It didn't have innovative ideas. And they were just, by this point, tired, as well as I think the country was.
1: As you mentioned, we'll be returning to that in a little bit, but I am curious to just elaborate upon that with, the, with an additional question. Do you think that that would influence his subsequent decision not to run for another term? Or was that still the furthest thing from his mind in January 1968? No, it's not the furthest thing. Johnson had threatened a number of times. And in fact, he walks into
0: the State of the Union with a special little piece of copy that only two or three people knew about, where he was going to announce his decision in uh, the State of the Union not to seek re-election. So this had been uh, going in his mind for a while. Uh, But, you know, nobody really took it serious. He'd done this right before the uh, 1964 uh, Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City. There was a number of points in his career where he threatened to quit, but nobody really thought he would do so. So I think going into 1968, it's a little bit there. It's permeating. But I think the events are going to change and really push him
1: to, uh, you know, make the decision later. So... He gives the State of the Union address, and then uh, within a matter of days, he encounters two of the major foreign policy crises of his administration. I was wondering if you could uh, talk about the first of these, which was the Pueblo incident and how Johnson reacted to that. Yes,
0: it's this is one of the strengths, I think, of the book, because what it's bringing out is, you know, two days ago, uh, the Pueblo the uh, a seizure. Uh, we celebrated its 50th anniversary. And what it does is it shows that this common issue with North Korea has been ongoing for more than 50 years. You know, we can take it back to the Korean War. But in 1968, we have the seizure of the Pueblo. The president feels emasculated by it because if he chooses to respond with force, the North Koreans are going to kill the 82 hostages. So he's left struggling to try to find a sort of middle ground to bring the hostages along, but also at the same time, try to show some force to try to prevent uh, similar actions from occurring again. So, again, it's a terrible decision, a terrible challenge uh, for him. And again, with the 50th anniversary of this, it just highlights North Korea has been on our radar map. It is a country that has been able to sort of tweak the United States periodically Um, to sort of establish its own little place in the world. You know, a few days later, eight days later, the Tet Offensive breaks out in Vietnam. And the president is suffering from a series of credibility issues because in December of 1967, he visits Vietnam, and he talks about how victory is within the grasp. Same thing that General Westmoreland Uh, his commander in Vietnam had come back to the States in December of 1968 or 67 and said the exact same thing. Uh, And then suddenly the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong launched this major offensive and the United States is caught uh, largely unprepared. And it's going to lead to this crisis of credibility related to his Vietnam
1: policy, like none to this point. One of the things you do in the book is you don't just talk about Lyndon Johnson and this issue or this crisis or this event, but you set in a context and that's where, and I was uh, going back to the Pueblo incident. You described how Johnson did just have to deal with the seizure of the American ship and the crew as hostages, but he also did deal with it in the context of American Soviet relations. As you described, there were uh, ongoing arms talks with the Soviet union at that time. And he had to manage this very uh, difficult situation. challenge of walking this uh, narrow path between having to respond to this crisis, but at the same time, not doing so in a way that might jeopardize these very real gains that he wanted to make in terms of American-Soviet relations. Oh, that is exactly right. And there's another part of the
0: triangle that is China. Uh, and But with the Soviet Union, he is wanting to pursue that. And here's something that a lot of people don't realize. They'll say today's North Korean crisis is infinitely more dangerous than it was in 1968. And I will contradict that uh, very greatly because North Koreans in 1968 had mutual defense pacts with both China and with Russia. and. You know it could have provoked if he didn't walk the fine line it could have provoked not only uh the loss of the chance to secure the abm uh treaties and other uh related to nuclear weapons it also could have provoked a global thermonuclear war not just a regional war a global one with between the soviet union the united states and china and so johnson is constantly having to work that triangle And try to think of this within the context of all the things that's going on, because he's being pressured. Senator uh, uh, Strom Thurmond is up there in the Senate just blasting him for not doing more and not showing a force and letting this little pissant country push us around. Um, Congressman Mendel Rivers makes the argument, well, just choose a part on their map and do just like Truman did and just level it. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the president oftentimes has to think in much more global terms in these other issues, not just related just to North Korea, but these larger global issues and, you know, the potential for global
1: uh, uh, nuclear war. And yet, as dramatic as the Pueblo crisis was, it didn't get anywhere near the public attention, for obvious reasons, that the Tet Offensive did, given how at that time, so many Americans were uh, in Vietnam, so many Americans were, were dying in Vietnam, and so many people were, uh, you know, facing that from a very personal perspective. Yes. And, and I think, you know, uh,
0: even before the Pueblo, Vietnam had jumped back to the forefront with the Battle of Khe Sanh. and the siege of Khe where 40,000 North Vietnamese surround 6,000 American Marines. And the great fear in the White House is there's going to be another Dien Bien Phu. And Johnson at nights in this last part of January would wander the halls with a flashlight going between his bedroom and down to the Situation Room just to get re- uh, daily reports or often more reports on his what he called his boys, a caisson. And I think that's important to contextualize, but Tet just turns it on its head. Uh, Tet just leads the American public to question, why have they been telling us this one thing Uh, When in reality, if we were winning, why can they launch such a massive attack uh, in late January 1968 that, you know, go so far as enter the area around or inside the uh, perimeter of the U.S. embassy? Probably the most fortified position in all of South Vietnam. So, That crisis of credibility and how it plays out after January 31st, 1968, is going to lead up to another major crisis or another major decision by the
1: president, and that comes on March 31st, 1968, when he announces his decision not to seek re-election. So you have described some of the factors that are in play in terms of that decision. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit more about what was happening domestically to push Johnson to make that decision to not seek another term right well i think vietnam is the major
0: source of problems uh there are other issues playing out of course the race riots that had occurred in the summer of 1967 have led to a a further polarization between white america and african-american uh population and led to a large you know People saying, well, we uh, in opposition to Johnson and people like Strom Thurmond and uh, many other southern Democrats are saying, well, we gave him all these rights. Now look what happens. Well, Johnson has to battle that. But it creates this almost crisis mentality. But Vietnam is central to it all. Uh, he can't go anywhere without protesters meeting him, uh, yelling, hey, hey, LBJ, how many babies you killed a day or how many children you kill a day? Uh, outside the White House in Lafayette Park, the protesters are always there and it's created such a significant strain. And Tet just accelerates and exacerbates the problem because part of the problem is Johnson loses confidence in what he's being told by the military in this period after January 31st, because by February, they come to him and they say, well, give us 206,000 more troops. Uh, Westmoreland makes this request through General Earl Wheeler, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And Johnson's like, what are you going to promise me that can be accomplished? And they don't really give him adequate answers other than they'll be able to hold the line. So if you add 206,000, you're going over 700,000 American troops. And Johnson's question, which has been in place since 1965, when do we reach uh, the peak? When do we make a difference? And they cannot give him a specific answer. So that stress just builds up on him. And by March of 1968, you've got other groups breaking. And probably the most famous of this discussed in the book are people within the uh, White House and within the Pentagon who are raising significant questions, including some of his major advisors like Clark Clifford, Harry McPherson. And then also, what you're seeing then is I think sort of the final nail in the coffin is the uh, comments of the wise men led by Dean Acheson, former Secretary of State, which in late March 1968 gave the president basically a report that we don't see how this is going to work out. We don't see how this is winnable uh, in a way that we can accept. And with that, I think Vietnam has driven the president back into a corner and it becomes very personal because one of his son-in-laws in uh, in March of 68 heads, uh, Chuck Robb, future senator for Virginia, heads off to Vietnam. And he has
1: other son-in-laws on his way to Vietnam not long after. What role does his uh, close victory in the New Hampshire primary uh, play in his decision? I think it plays somewhat of a role. I think the
0: major thing about the uh, close victory in New Hampshire is that Bobby Kennedy comes out. And I think you're going to see a lot in this book, at least through June of 1968, that's very interesting about his contentious relationship with Bobby Kennedy. And um, I think that is a a major part. But if anything, Kennedy might have convinced him not to withdraw because he didn't want to lose to Bobby Kennedy. But here's a, a factor that a lot of people ignore on the March 31st decision. He was genuinely concerned that he was going to die in office. Or he was going to become incapacitated in office. He talked often about his grandmother, who had a stroke and would basically sit in the family home and not be able to communicate and would drool. And that was the last thing he wanted. As well as he would walk by the portrait of Woodrow Wilson and remember the stress. That brought Woodrow Wilson down to the point his last two years in office. His wife was running the country, not him. And he was incapacitated in the White House. So those health issues and those concerns that he wouldn't make it that far and keeping in mind, he'd had a major coronary in 1956 that uh, he barely survived. So I think those health issues were weighing on him also, as well as just the overall stress of the uh, Vietnam War, uh, all the things that he's trying to manage. Uh, economic
1: problems, the gold crisis that comes along. So these things are all playing out. It, it's fascinating because what you set up is all of these excellent deterrents for running for another term that lead to this momentous announcement on March 31st. And yet, as you uh, point out periodically throughout the rest of the book, it's there's always this uh, sense or this possibilities being raised by various people that he might reverse himself and Enter the, and re-enter the, the uh, race or enter the race uh, for, for the nomination and the presidency uh, after all. Well, if you look at his numbers in March 31st, uh, at, at
0: that point, March 31st, 1968, he's beating all the Republican nominees. He's beating all the Democratic. Uh, and, and the way this structure was set up in 1968, the, uh, you know, the primaries didn't really matter for the most part. Uh, It was really going to all the decisions going to be made by the uh, leaders of the Democratic Party uh, in Chicago. And so I think he always felt like that might be an option. But I honestly, in talking to his people closest to him, the ones that are still alive, like Tom Johnson, Jim Jones, uh, Larry Temple, all these people that worked very closely with him, they said he would have loved to have been asked, but he would have loved to have been able to turn them down. But he would have loved the idea that there was some adulation still left for him. And I cover this very extensively
1: in the lead into the uh, Chicago Convention. I I think it also speaks to the 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 sense of leadership that he did provide and how especially in given what happens with especially Robert Kennedy's assassination, how there was the sense that he really was still despite having pulled out of the race, very much the dominant presence in the Democratic Party, which at that time was still the dominant party in the country. Right. Well, and this,
0: again, I think if you look at the 1968 election, which I know we'll go into greater detail later, uh, you know, Humphrey comes within about 200,000, 300,000 votes of winning the popular vote. And Johnson, given his strength within the Democratic Party, his strength, especially in the African-American community and some of the uh, constituencies he had developed throughout his political career. Uh, he was still a very viable and very prominent force. And again, if you look at the polls, even going in through 19, uh, through June and July, he's still polling quite well and would have been potentially able to, you know, uh, take Richard Nixon to the woodshed. And that's something I think that's lost on a lot of people. But I honestly don't think that after March 31st that he was really going to reverse himself. Uh, But that did create some ambivalence, which I do think affects his relationship with his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, and especially Vietnam does, uh, to the point where I don't think he does as good a job as he could have to have helped uh, Humphrey in the process of seeking the presidency.
1: Nonetheless, his decision does allow him to focus more upon the issues that he faced as president. And as you described, soon after he makes his announcement, he faces this great national tragedy in the form of the assassination of the foremost civil rights leader in America. Yes.
0: I mean... He goes from riding high. Most of the country really rallied around him after the March 31st decision because they looked at him and go, this guy sacrificed his political career because his argument, what he wants to focus on is getting the United States out of Vietnam. And he is going to devote much of his presidency, the remaining part of his presidency, towards trying to seek a peace treaty and trying to seek a way to extricate the United States from uh, South Vietnam while leaving in place a uh, viable and independent South Vietnam. But Martin Luther King's assassination, that four or five days that he's riding high, it's destroyed overnight with the assassination of King. And, you know, by the point uh, of this first week of April of 1968, riding in streets reaches the point where it's within a few blocks of the White House. He has to order in U.S. troops, federalized troops and National Guard into D.C., into Baltimore, into Chicago, Many places throughout the country and what appeared like a sort of a high for the president suddenly goes to a point of crisis management. And it's very difficult and he loses the momentum uh, that he had gained in that uh, speech.
1: I I was thinking about uh, one of the pictures in your book where you have these two aides uh, in Johnson's White House who are, are both sort of bowed over uh, in, in mourning at, at the news of, of, of King's death. And it it, it gets to just how uh, personal uh, and how, how personally affected uh, so many uh, of Johnson's people were by uh, King's assassination. Yes. I
0: mean it- – King and uh, Johnson had had their problems, especially after King makes his speech uh, regarding his opposition to Vietnam. And they'd always had a sort of a contentious relationship, although they'd worked together quite well in 64 and 65. Um, But, yeah, it it just it it just takes the sails or the wind out of the sails of many Americans. Uh, They're just asking themselves this question. They watch Tet break out. Things are not going well in Vietnam. They've watched the riots in the summer of 1967, and suddenly they're just breaking out again. And they're just going, What is happening to our country? Um, you know, some people are celebrating uh, King's death, and that just demonstrates. I mean, in, uh, you know, base, there's a couple of stories of bases in South Vietnam where whites don uh, white sheets and parade around celebrating the victor- uh, death of King. That's just how divided the country is. And Johnson's just trying to hold it together. And I think in the assassinations of King, he does a fairly good job. And what he does is two things that are very much Johnson. He tries to provide some kind of, you know, sort of steady hand because you have people like uh, Senator uh, Robert Byrd calling for he was mad. He found out that U.S. troops uh, in Washington, D.C. were not being issued live ammo. Uh, and he's calling for a shooting of the protesters or, or a shooting of the rioters. And he, although he does say, well, let's just shoot them in the knees. Let's not shoot them in the, you know, shoot the kill. But Johnson's resisting that. And he's trying to, and I see Johnson actually empathizing in many ways with those and making points about, you know, if I'd had my neck stepped on for hundreds of years, you know, and suddenly I see all my leaders being gunned down, if I get to rise up, I'm probably going to hit somebody. And so he shows some empathy, but he also shows restraint and constantly stays on the phone and trying to get his federal troops not to fire. And in most cases, they don't. And they're able to sort of bring some uh, semblance of uh, order back to the uh, cities that are on fire. But. The other part that he does is he uses King's memory to also push through the Fair Housing Act in 1968. So he takes a tragedy and turns something and something had been stalled in the Senate and the House for uh, two years and he's able to secure the 1968 Civil Rights Act. So he has some successes,
1: but the country just appears teetering on the edge of just falling apart. And that sense of teetering is reinforced barely two months later with the assassination of another nationally renowned figure in in robert kennedy yes and and, and again it's just i keep going
0: back and uh the actual title i wanted for the book was the year of a continuous nightmare and that's johnson's characterization of 1968 because just as you seem to get a little more equilibrium and some uh you know steadiness here comes the assassination of robert kennedy And that just, you know, pays into what happened in 1963. It also pits Johnson against, you know, what had been perceived of as Johnson against Kennedy. And the Kennedy people look on Johnson as a usurper. And, you know, a lot of idealism is destroyed with the death of Bobby Kennedy, who had, you know, altered many of his views over time. But, you know, it just, you know, I just, he doesn't be a, a, get really a break And some will say, well, you know, he's created it because it was Vietnam and because he pushed civil rights and because he pushed so many of these things on America and he's led to the, uh, you know, the fracturing. I I think that's grossly simplistic. I think there are many factors playing out, including the backlash that has undermined the attempts to promote civil rights that Southern conservatives and Western conservatives have undermined his great society, job programs, civil rights, Medicare, all the different things that are still being fought today. But Bobby Kennedy's assassination was a significant loss, I think, for uh, many Americans. Uh, King's was devastating for a particular sector of American society. Uh, Bobby Kennedy's a different sector. And then it further divides the Democratic Party.
1: And, and of course, it's also one in which Johnson has a very different reaction to. And I I keep thinking about that uh, uh, that passage that you quote that Dobrynin was uh, talking about, about how the diplomats were ranking the uh, or, or preference that, that Johnson had in terms of his successors. It would be first Humphrey, then Rockefeller, and then at the bottom it was Ho Chi Minh, and then just below Ho Chi Minh there was Robert Kennedy. So there, there was a, an awareness that as as tragic as Kennedy's assassination was, that it, that, that John, it, it got to – it was a much more complicated relationship. For for Johnson in terms of uh, of of Robert Kennedy and how he uh, responded reacted to it personally, yeah, and I
0: think actually you know if you read the chapter, I think Johnson performed about as well as he could. Um, you know, as far as showing great sympathy to the family, making public uh, you know accommodations for them, staying out of the limelight, letting them have their moment, and. Genuinely trying to, uh, you know, do what was best for the family. And despite the heavy uh, competition between the two men, uh, he showed great uh, sympathy and empathy uh, that I think most people would ignore, especially the Kennedy people would say he didn't have this in him. But if you read the chapter, I think it really comes forth. And then what he tries to do with Kennedy's assassination is try to push through gun control legislation. And he doesn't have nearly the success that he had after the King assassination. And I have a very good piece in the Washington Post uh, from a couple of months ago that talk about the challenges of gun control in 1968 and time to current issues today. And I think that's an important part to keep in mind. King's assassination ties to today. The issues in Ferguson, the issues related to race and Black Lives Matter, these issues haven't gone away. And in fact, they bear a striking resemblance to what we saw in 1968. Same goes with guns. Uh, the number, you know, Robert Kennedy was in Rosenberg, Oregon, just a few, week, uh, few weeks before he was assassinated and makes a strong statement about gun control and what the needs and what we need to do and have some national things like registries and uh, licensing. And again, 50 years later, these issues are still very common and very much in our uh,
1: consciousness as Americans. You mentioned how that one of the things that tends to get understated when we talk about the challenges in 1968 from a political standpoint is the growing conservative backlash in Congress. Nothing really seems to bring this to the forefront more visibly than the battle over the nomination of Abe Fortas to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I was wondering if you could perhaps, uh, because this tends to be one of the uh, less prominent aspects of Johnson's final year. I was wondering if you could uh, explain a bit who Abe Fortas was and why Johnson's effort to uh, appoint him to the Supreme, to the chief justiceship ultimately ended up in failure. Right.
0: Well, it is. And again, here's another one. Uh, You want to look at Merritt and Gorsuch. Here's another case where partisan politics torpedoes a nomination that typically had been just rubber stamped by the Senate. A Fortas was a longtime friend of Johnson going back to the 1948 Senate election and was a prominent uh, Jewish-American lawyer in the D.C. area, uh, very uh, you know, af- effective in many ways as an advisor to the president, and not just Johnson, but many other people. But in 1965, he had put uh, – Johnson had nominated Fortas for a uh, justice position, and he had been approved with no problems. Well, in 1968, the problem is uh, Earl Warren – uh, Since Johnson a letter saying, well, I'm going to resign, but I'm going to allow it where we can, you know, uh, this is going to be predated and so that you can start the search for the next chief justice. Uh, and here's the problem is by this point, the partisanship has become much more intense. It's an election year. It's after March 31st with people know Johnson's not running for reelection and the Republicans smell blood in the water, especially a guy named Robert Griffith uh, from Michigan, junior senator from Michigan. And when Fortas is nominated for the chief justice position, Johnson also nominates one of his perceived cronies, a guy named Homer Thornberry, for the justice position uh, that Fortas would be giving up because of being moved to chief justice. And this just creates this political firestorm and Johnson and them, it just falls completely apart. There's many things at play here. One is Fortas and Johnson did have, I would consider, and I think most people would consider, a fairly improper relationship where Fortas was providing advice to the president while he was sitting on the Supreme Court. we're going to see other problems arise. But again, the Republicans see this as a chance to, you know, uh, stymie Johnson, and prevent him from being able to put his imprint on the Supreme Court to protect his great society for years to come. And it gets very down and dirty. And ultimately what undoes undoes it is Johnson loses the support of Southern conservatives. Anti-semitism is very much in play, but Fortas' behavior does not help the case, especially after it's uncovered that he took money from American University to teach a course, an inordinate amount of money uh, uh, from people who had donated that had cases in front of the court. And at that point, it's just dead in the water. And by uh, August of uh, 1968, Johnson withdraws the Fortas nomination. Uh, Fortas stays on the court. He will later be removed for some other improprieties and Nixon will be able to come in and put in the next uh, chief justice as well as nominate several others to fill positions on the Supreme Court. But again, it was just a precursor to what we just saw recently uh, regarding uh, Merritt and the efforts to put him on the Supreme Court that the Republicans
1: stymied and then brought in their own person uh, with Gorsuch. It it also speaks to how this this sense that you know, begins to build a little as as book goes along as to how you know, Johnson's lame duck status increasingly it, it impedes his effectiveness, not just with the Fortas nomination, but also in in a different context with Czechoslovakia. Because as you describe, he, he's he's frustrated by a much a limited range of action. There's this there just seems to be this sense of of. Uh, of, of, of growing limitations that you w- just don't really envision with a president as commanding as Johnson had been over the previous four years of his presidency.
0: Right. And I think, you know, the Fortis nomination, and and again, it's a fascinating story and just how it unfolds. And again, just the blatant partisanship, but also the conservative backlash related to people like Richard Russell and James Eastland and Harry Byrd, these conservative Democrats that in many ways are much more conservative than the Republican Party in this day and time. Uh, but the Czechoslovakian crisis, I think, stands out because it just demonstrates the incapacitation of the U.S. to be able to respond to major, uh, you know, a major invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact after Czechoslovakia started to liberalize its uh, government. And basically, there were no options. And it, here, I do think that it shows Johnson understood two things. One, he understood history. The lessons of Hungary in 1956 where we encouraged the Hungarians to stand up to the Soviets and they just got crushed and we did nothing. He doesn't want to repeat that mistake. But he also is still trying to negotiate with the Soviet Union all of our nuclear arms and also trying to get them to pressure the North Vietnamese into concessions. And it just proves to be beyond his control. Again, I I went back and I talked about in the first, uh, the idea events overwhelm. leaders in office they can't control these things they can't foresee these things oftentimes and czechoslovakia was that case just there was nothing he could do there was no military option because our forces are spread so thin in uh southeast asia and also the europeans weren't going to support starting a, a nuclear war over czechoslovakia despite the images that had come out in 1938 and the memories of that so It was just a no-win situation, and he managed it the best that he could, tried to prevent the Soviets from then crushing the Romanians who had had their own liberalization. But uh, it just demonstrates the U.S. president, despite the perception that we have all this power, oftentimes it's very limited in what they can do and what their actions can be.
1: I feel like that could also be a description for Johnson's role in the 1968 Democratic Convention. And I I really liked how you – the 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 image that you that you uh, have of him, of this person, he he's he's the most you know, powerful man on earth. He is sitting in his ranch in in Texas, and he is trying to influence events uh, from a distance. And it, it's you know the the image is one of just sheer chaos.
0: Well, and this is a man who is I, I again one of the. Uh, and this is, you can take this for good or bad, he was one of the best politicians ever in American history. He got things done, whether it was a Senate majority leader as president, he has a significant list of accomplishments. You may not like him, but you cannot question that this man understood the political system probably better than anyone that uh, I've studied in American history. But the problem is by this point, he, his ambitions here hurt the democratic party uh because the democratic party is very split it still has this conservative democratic uh southern wing that is uh has to be pacified and it's very difficult this is before the 70s and 80s when many of these same southern democrats become republicans and then they bring their own uh perspective into the republican party and we see that playing out today but johnson's down in the ranch going so far as to say well i'm not really trying to influence things but he's sitting on the phone having his advisors do so so that he you know basically it's a a half truth and what ultimately i think the main thing that he does is he really undermines hubert humphrey by not letting humphrey be able to push through the compromise vietnam plank and by doing so really sends and creates the chaos uh, at the convention to a large degree. Of course, the chaos is created also outside the convention uh, by the yippies and the hippies and Jerry Rubin and their whole group. But inside the halls, if they had reached a compromise on Vietnam, that would have gone a long way to preventing the disorder
1: within the convention itself. That's part of what really surprised me was you know how much control he was able to exert even from this long distance. And it wasn't, it, it didn't achieve the sort of uh, of, of outcome that he necessarily wanted, but he was still able to try. He, he you, you described how he's able to dampen down some protests, uh, within the convention. He's able to, as you put it, uh, you know, in, ensure that the, uh, uh, that the plank that the platform reflected his interests uh, a bit more than Humphreys, and it and, and speaks to just how he still is in this commanding position. That as uh, even though he is being lame duck, that he he still is the president of the United States, and he still exerts this enormous influence, which you see not just at the uh, uh, convention from this long distance, as limited as it is, but also in terms of this uh, in terms of the election itself with. Uh, issues like the the bombing pause, the push for negotiations, and as you put it in the chapter heading, the October surprise that wasn't.
0: And I think this is what, coming out of the convention, the Democrats are weak. Uh, And the fact that Humphrey is able to get so close to Nixon is surprising in itself. But that's what leads, and here's another tie to today. In 1968, it's very clear the Nixon administration interfered in the peace process. Uh, You know, Whether it was Richard Nixon himself, I always argued that the way I would describe this, could I win a case, uh, a criminal case against Richard Nixon for being part of the Chenault affair? Probably not. Could I win a civil case? I think so. Uh, There's enough circumstantial evidence that Nixon and the people closest to him were interfering, actively seeking to undermine the peace process uh, in uh, tandem with both the uh, South Vietnamese and the Taiwanese government. Uh, to try to prevent uh, a peace plan from breaking out and a a peace plank uh, from being able to go forward only a few days before the election. And it's such a close election, uh, it might have swung uh, the election in Humphrey's favor. Uh, But they did their uh, best to make sure that didn't happen, working through Anna Chennault primarily, but I think through
1: other uh, sources uh, also. You uh, In the book, you had the Advantage, so few uh, historians have before you of being able to uh, recount the phone conversations between Johnson and Nixon and, and, and the, uh, the way you lay them out, it, it really does expose the degree to which how so much of the conversation consists of what is not being said rather than what is being said or what, what people are saying versus what they're actually doing. Well,
0: you know, this is the part that I, you know, I love this chapter. And I think uh, there's a wonderful book that's, you know, 300 pages that covers this in much greater detail by Ken Hughes. Uh, But this book, I really think, you know, outlines it in a very succinct manner of the issues that are unfolding, And that we think a lot of these things are new. No, they're not new. These have been going on for a long time. And I'm just happy that we had the phone conversations because today I fear we're losing a lot of the historical record, you know, because of emails and uh, other things that are much easier to discard. But the phone conversations also give us that, as you say, an ability to sort of note inflection, what's being left out, uh, you know, all the different things of tone, and they give us these great insights and there, there's this wonderful conversations going on between not just Johnson, but he's using people like Everett Dirksen as representatives to get the point across to Nixon that he needs to stop this. And they need to stop this interference and uh, stop uh, you know preventing peace from moving forward in the Paris uh, conference. So it is a wonderful resource provided by the Johnson Library Uh, that gives
1: us significant insights that might not exist without them. The election ultimately, of course, is is won by Nixon. Um, How does Johnson come to terms with that? And and how does he, at the end of his presidency, come to terms with uh, everything that has happened over that past year? Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, you really, Johnson's not a man that was going to sit
0: down and reflect immediately. It's going to take a few years, and he's going to write his memoirs called Vantage Point that will come out in 1971 or 1972. I'm sorry. I don't remember the exact date right now. But you're going to see him at that point start to reflect. Uh, But Johnson was not one of these people that was going to sit down on a daily basis or sit down at the end of the year and be sentimental and start reflection. It's going to take a little while. But what you do see is a man that does not like Richard Nixon. Uh, That's going to continue. Uh, I don't have a story in the book, but there's a great story of the LBJ library is created. And there's a special suite in the LBJ library with the shower built because Johnson was a big man and it's a very powerful shower. And when Nixon came for the opening of the library, he needed a shower. And Johnson uh, said, well, go take one in uh, my shower. And Nixon, much smaller man, got knocked to the ground by the power (laughs) of the water. And Johnson laughed. He just laughed at it and he knew exactly what he was doing. They just did not like each other. Nixon was already man to like, and you know um, what Johnson though, he could rationalize that Nixon probably would follow his Vietnam policy better than what Hubert Humphrey. And that's creates a lot of problems. As I say earlier in the book about Humphrey, not receiving the support from Johnson that he might should have and could have. And uh, I could have made a, a significant difference, but there is no love lost between these two men and it would never be lost. But Johnson does pull punches and tries not to undermine the presidency with his memoirs because one thing he does love is that
1: office of the president and he tries to protect it as much as possible within his own limitations. And that's a point that you make not just in terms of the memoirs, but you describe it when you're talking about the final days before the election when Johnson has these, this information that could potentially devastate the Nixon uh, campaign and 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 ruin his chance of becoming president. And yet, as you describe, he ultimately refrains from releasing it in in part because he is thinking about the office and the country more than the immediate goal of, of deterring Nixon.
0: Well, and I think that's what it is. I think there's two things. One, he doesn't want to give up his sources that he's used to get uh, information on Nixon and Chennault, which he'd been using the FBI as well as the NSA. I mean, we bugged the uh, presidential palace in uh, Saigon. We know what's going on. We're constantly intercepting their messages. And then we also have bugged the uh, South Vietnamese embassy in the United States. They don't want that to come forward. But he also just doesn't, you know, what happens, and this is the rationalization, what happens if Nixon wins and you create a constitutional crisis uh, within the first few days that Nixon takes over. Well, the irony of that is it, it, all he does is he delays it for a few years. And uh, I'm he probably I'm glad that he didn't live long enough to see what happened to the office of the presidency with uh, Nixon and Watergate. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, uh, the irony is I'm still working on LPJ. Uh, the book that I'm you know, I can't get away from him. I think he is such a fascinating character and such a prominent player, you know, whether you love him or hate him, you have to admit he did put a, a stamp. And I still believe, you know, people are saying, well, you know, Trump's out to destroy uh, LBJ or, or uh, Obama's legacy. I think that's only part of it. I think what we're really seeing is a lot of the attacks today are on Johnson's legacy, environmental issues, Medicare, uh, you know, uh, education government involvement in a a variety of areas and the attacks on the great society are still significant civil rights. So I think you're still seeing that. So LBJ, I just keep coming back to him uh, because he's a fascinating character and boy, does he give you good copy? Uh, Just the stories that you can tell about this man, the larger than life nature of him. So what I'm going to do is write a biography of him where I look at, it's not going to be traditional. I'm going to take 31 days uh, in his life and look at pivotal moments in his life where decisions were made, many well-known like November twenty second, 1963, but others lesser known where he made uh, significant decisions that shaped the rest of his life as well as that of the country. So that is my next major project. And like I say, it's sort of hard once you get pulled into the vortex of the LBJ, it's hard to escape. And of
1: course, it gives you an excuse to spend some more time in Austin. Oh, yeah. I mean, the great part about that is I get
0: to go get some good barbecue.
1: Kyle, I I hope you enjoy researching your next book. I I look forward to reading it, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the day.